You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Tech in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, new information on Musk's big backers in his bid to take over Twitter. High on the list, a Dubai-based investment firm with a secretive founder. We will tell you what you need to know. Plus, I'm joined by Klarna CEO Sebastian Simiakowski. Is he worried about Apple moving into Klarna's, Klarna's buy now, pay later territory? And Ariana Huffington joins me to talk about how she got some of the biggest companies in the world to sign Thrive's mental health pledge, covering millions of workers. We're going to get to all of that in a moment. But first, a secretive $5 billion fund is helping Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter. Vi Capital has committed $700 million to finance Musk's $44 billion deal. The firm is based in Dubai and was founded by Alexander Tomas, a German investor who previously worked with Russian billionaire Yuri Milner. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us to discuss. So tell us more about the significance, Kurt, of this fund's involvement. Well, I think it just goes to show exactly how far-reaching uh, Elon has had to go in order to get funding for this deal. It also kind of goes to show uh, how international I think this there is interest in in Twitter right now and, and mostly in funding a project that Elon Musk cares about, right? I, Vi has a, a history of kind of connecting itself with these big um, name tech Backers like Elon, uh, I think they're also in the Boring Company, which is Elon. Uh, they've done some investments um, in SpaceX before. So I just think there's, you know, it kind of gives a, a bit of an international flair to this whole thing, but also just goes to show exactly how far Elon is having to go in order to, to find funding for this thing. And they are the third largest outside equity investor in the deal. So there's, they're, they're getting a big chunk of this deal. Talk to us about where the discussions between Musk and Twitter stand on bots. There's been a lot of back and forth. Right. 
Yeah, so the latest this week was that Elon came forward. He, he formally filed a letter with the SEC saying, again, you know, hey, I may walk away from this deal if I don't start getting information to prove that the bot number Twitter claims is the bot number is legit. And now what we heard from yesterday was that Twitter is going to give him access to the API, which is known colloquially as the fire hose of tweets, right? So every public tweet on Twitter is now going to be accessible to Elon and his team. They can do with that what they wish. I'm not exactly sure if that's going to answer the bot question for him, but it does show that they're trying to figure out a middle ground here where he can get the answers he needs and they can move this thing forward. Meantime, we've also been covering another story. Meta had been working on a watch that we imagine would have been a competitor to the Apple Watch. They've now stopped those plans. What happened here? Yeah, so they're still working on a smartwatch. I do want to be clear about that. But the one that we have been talking about and that you may have seen written up in the press uh, is no longer going to be developed. And that one had two cameras. That was kind of what made it unique. It had a front-facing camera, but also a camera on the back. And you could take the watch off of the strap and kind of hold it up to take pictures. And what happened was that back camera that was against your wrist, that was interfering with uh, the company's ability to um, use the watch as a controller, right? So one of the things they want to do with wrist wearables is they want to be able to determine when you're moving your hand or your fingers so that you can uh, use that as a controller, for example, augmented reality glasses. And the camera was interfering there, so they're going to get rid of this prototype and they're going to do something else with the watch. But again, as you pointed out, this was kind of considered something that maybe they were doing to compete with the Apple Watch. So the fact that they're moving to something else um, obviously is notable. All right, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, thank you for your reporting on this. Now back to that Musk Twitter deal. Another backer of that deal, of course, is Larry Ellison. The Oracle founder is the world's 11th richest person with a net worth of $88.9 billion. In 2012, he bought 98% of the Hawaiian island of Lanai for $300 million. That purchase came with two Four Seasons resorts, a significant chunk of its homes, and practically all of its commercial properties. Overnight, Ellison became almost everyone's boss, landlord, or both. In today's Big Take, Bloomberg Sophie Alexander took a deep dive on the impact this has had on the people of Lanai. And Sophie, I'm from Hawaii. We call it Lanai there. Talk to us about the history of this island. I'm very familiar with it. How is it that one person was able to buy almost the entire island? Yeah, it's unique because you think of billionaires buying private islands and it's not that big of a deal. But this one's different because it has 3,000 people who live there. Uh, so Lanai's history goes back into the 1800s when one person came over and started buying up chunks of the land and slowly accumulated pretty much the entire island, like 98% of it. And that passed from one family to another until in 1922, James Dole bought it and he started turning it into the world's largest pineapple plantation, which it was for seven decades. Then it passes to another billionaire, David Murdoch, who is chairman of Dole. And then in 2012, Larry Ellison bought it. And of course, there are still thousands of regular people who live there. How exactly are they being impacted by Larry Ellison now owning it? 
Yeah, this is interesting because, like I said, the people who live there and have lived there for generations are used to being under the control of a single company or a single person or family. But Larry Ellison is a whole different animal, as one person put it. You know, he's got $90 billion. That's a lot of money. I mean, it's nearly double what he had before the pandemic started. The last billionaire, David Murdoch, he only had like $2 billion. They call him the poor billionaire. Um, so Larry can really do whatever he wants, and it's, it's starting to show. And what exactly is he doing? I mean, this tell us. The stories in your article are just absolutely fascinating. Right. So true billionaire form, you know, as soon as Larry gets there, he decides he doesn't like the food, so he builds one Nobu. Now there's uh, another Sensei by Nobu. Uh, he renovates the two Four Seasons resorts, and so now they're fancier than ever for, you know, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars a night. Um, and he's also doing things for the community, you know. He, he bought the grocery store and he renovated it. Um, but that is the main concern, is that he's buying up a lot of the small businesses, he's buying up some more houses, and people are nervous. So generally, are people, you know, you use the word nervous, they're, they're not happy with this I think change, it's more even than, though they're getting a new grocery store, for example? Sure. I mean, it depends who you ask, but I think it's more of an anxiety because the big problem is a lack of communication. People don't know what ultimately Larry's plans are, and so they just don't know what their future is going to look like here, and so more and more of them feel like there's not a place for them on the island. They're, it's being catered to the uber, uber wealthy, not for, for locals. Well, and a lot of these people, you know, their livelihoods, they service the resorts, they work at these resorts. Is Larry Ellison spending a lot of time there personally? Do we know anything about his endgame? Yes, so he moved there during the pandemic, and that's been key because, you know, it's kind of like out of place, out of mind. Now that he's there, all of his plans are picking up. So he's building a Montessori school. He's building a five-home complex for himself. Um, you know, he's building a new housing project to house all of his construction workers because housing is a huge issue on the island. He's shut down his third hotel for workforce housing for the entire year. And a lot of this is happening with very little communication or no communication with the community. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's a fascinating read. You can check it out this week's Bloomberg Big Take. Sophie Alexander, thank you. Check out the article in Bloomberg Business Week. Well, more musical chairs at Disney. CEO Bob Chapek has abruptly fired the head of television, Peter Rice, for... Not being a team player, according to Bloomberg sources, Rice was chair of general entertainment content and oversaw a vast swath of shows carried across Disney networks. The sudden firing is the latest twist in a tumultuous stretch for Chapek. His leadership has come under scrutiny over the last year as he wrestled with challenges that included a high-profile dust-up with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over a new law limiting discussion of sexual identity in classrooms. We are learning more about Apple's jump into the buy now, pay later business. The company will actually handle lending, including credit checks, with a new business called Apple Financing, marking a significant further push into financial services. Some see this push as a threat to the more established players, including Affirm and Klarna. But is it? Joining me now, Sebastian Shimakovsky, CEO and co-founder of Klarna. And Sebastian, I was at Apple when they were unveiling this, and everyone immediately thought about companies like Klarna and Affirm. You tweeted that plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. But are you worried that this could hurt your business? Not really. First and foremost, like, I think it's a great win for consumers worldwide that Apple is now embracing a better form of consumer credit. 
um, we're looking at an industry uh, of retail banking payments that you know has an addressable market of $440 billion worldwide. And it has been constructed in a way traditionally where credit cards have been making a fortune by trying to get us to revolve at high interest rates once we get that credit card statement every month. And this form of credit is better for consumers. So I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. And Plan has been offering this form of credit for a while. I actually would be mostly worried if I was one of those credit card banks who embraced Apple Pay, was so happy to embrace this new technology, and now suddenly find myself having this company in front of my credit card promoting an interest-free credit instead of my 40% revolving credit one, and then pushing that customer to another provider. I, I, that, that's the, that, to me, should be the big headline of this news. For us, I mean, Klarna has 150 million users worldwide. We're uh, one of the largest third-party global payment networks in the world. Payin4 is a fantastic product. It has done tremendously well for us in the U.S. and helped us a lot to gain recognition and so forth. But people are using us for a lot of reasons. One, not the least, being the fact that we're the richest data payments networks in the world because we have SKU-level data and digital receipts on every transaction, allowing us to create a much richer, richer consumer experience. 40% of our transactions are debit, not even credit. People don't know that, um, and so forth. So, so I mean, I, I'm, I'm welcoming it. I always think competition is nice, and I'm, I'm also fortunate to have a neighbor here in Daniel Eck, the founder of Spotify, who has, has, can give me some tips on how to compete with Apple successfully, <laughs> obviously, over the years. Good to, good to know that you and Eck um, are friendly. I also spoke with a firm CEO, Max Levchin. He, he similarly uh, you know, said it was a win for consumers, but he also said something else. Take a listen. Why I'm not particularly worried about Apple Pay entering the buy now, pay later space, they're focused on the convenience of a six-week product, which I think is great, and there's plenty of competitors, and they should be worried. I think uh, this uh, spells certain level of concern for folks that are really specialized in this really short-term product. Is he calling out Klarna there? He might. You know, it's uh, funny, me and Max have a long history. I remember presenting Klana at depth, trying to recruit him as a board member and then being surprised by him announcing a firm six months later. Um, so Ooh, we, have okay. a fun, we, have a, we have a fun history, me and Max. But um, look, I think, look, uh, we, they're very distinctly, he's, he's very accurate about one thing, and that is that Klana and a firm are distinctly different businesses. 90%, if I've understood a firm's reporting correct, 90% of their businesses is, um, is uh, financing. Uh, long-term financing, uh, I, if I understand correctly, reports online, 50% of their um, of their uh, balance credit is priced at 25 to 30% interest rate, rates that we don't even go up to, Plana maximize, maximize at 25. So it's a very different business. He's lending high-ticket items uh, to people that think 25 to 30% interest rate is attractive. Plana is a pay interest-free product. It's a payments product. We have the largest account-to-account-based payments network in the world. So these these are distinct different businesses, and and um, and um, so yes, I think that in that I agree with him. In that I think it's accurate. So some some shots fired there. I'm gonna have to get Max to respond to that. You know, he also talked <laughs> exactly. about how a firm. He also talked about how a firm is hiring, and Klarna did have some layoffs recently. I believe you announced plans to lay off 10% of your workforce. When you look back, do you see any mistakes in your execution and? You know, does this mean that you're kind of a, a slightly less optimistic about how big the market can be for Kleiner than you were? No, I think, look, for us, there's a long-term opportunity in this, which has been that 
I believe we're going through a similar revolution in retail banking and payments that retail went through 10 years ago. You I remember I've been running Klarna for 14, you know, 17 years now, whereof the 14 first year were profitable. Um, and, um, and I went through the financial crisis with this company 2007 and 2008. So, uh, but what happened in the last two years is that we've been very focused on establishing ourselves in the U.S. We're proud that we have 25 million users, that we see, you know, Macy's and Sephora and big, uh, fantastic brands in the U.S. adopted Klarna and is, uh, is offering Klarna today. So it's been a very, very, um, a time where we've been investing a lot. And it's been very clear, as I think a lot of other companies in the U.S. have understood now as well, that there is a shift in investors, you know, uh, investors being entirely focused on asking for what are you doing to grow faster six to nine months ago are now starting to ask questions about profitability and so forth. And again, we have the benefit of having been a profitable company for a long period of, for a long period of time. We now invested heavily and we, we said, look, the end goal is exactly the same that it has always been, but there's going to be a slightly different path towards that. And unfortunately led us to something that, you know, I find obviously very sad that we, as a consequence of that, decided to make uh, changes to how the org looks and how it's set up. And that has led us to uh, suggest and ask people to, uh, uh, you know, offer them severance packages and so forth and ask some people to to leave Klarna, which is obviously very sad because I think this is all amazing talent, amazing people that, you know, have uh, have contributed to the company. So it, it's a sad thing to do, but I think it's it's the right thing considering how the market looks nowadays. And I, I think it will set up, up even better for uh, for future success going forward now uh, in this new in this new market environment that we're in. Well, I know you made quite a move and shared some of their, their details, which um, I, I hope they're getting some inbound, all of that great talent. Um, as you've said, the goal is to become the world's largest retail bank. Given regulation, given the changing competitive landscape, how far out is that vision in, in, in the United States and abroad? No, we're quite far actually ahead, right? So I, 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 to me, like, if you look at this from a future perspective, what I believe in uh, um, and what I believe for a long period of time is that like someday in the future, you wake up in the morning, your computer says to you, your financial assistant, digital assistant says, hey, I've analyzed your mortgage tonight. I realized it could you know, save you X amount of dollars by shifting from supplier A to supplier B. And the only thing you need to say, yes, it's a little bit like self-driving cars. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do know it will happen. So the future of banking is very different to what we've traditionally seen, where banks have been obsessed with what they call maximizing interest rate spread, meaning, you know, giving depositors as little as possible and then borrowing it out at highest possible interest rate. The, tr the true future of retail banking financial services is somebody's on the consumer side trying to help them save time, save money, make you know, them less worried about their finances. And it's been very clear to me that, that uh, who those five or four large companies that will dominate that space in the next 10 years on a global basis will be. If somebody's global and somebody has a banking background and is willing to pursue that, there will be some tech companies pursuing that. We see Apple now okay. um, pursuing some of that. There will be some fintechs and there will be some traditional banks. And I think Plana with its 150 million users and with a data set that is much richer than anyone else due to the, you know, the fact that we have skew level data on all transactions is giving us a, a tremendous opportunity to lead the game in providing more value for consumers and really be on the consumer side. And I'm also happy now that even though media has questioned things like buy now, pay later, we're seeing other people adopting and recognizing that this is a better form of credit as well. So I think it's verifying okay. a lot of the assumptions that we've had. And so I feel very excited about it. Sebastian Chimikovsky, Klarna CEO, thank you for joining us as always.
Coming up, Meta is now a leader in another social media trend, lawsuits. Why the company has been sued more than half a dozen times just in the last week. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. In the last week, eight lawsuits have been filed across the country against Meta. The suits alleging that the company builds algorithms leading young people into addiction. For more, I'm joined now by Bloomberg's Malafi Nayak. Malafi, thank you so much for joining us. So what kind of addiction are you talking about here? So the users who've sued Meta are claiming that Facebook and Instagram have created algorithms and uh, products that keep users hooked onto um, its platforms, especially young users, and that they promote excessive use uh, of these platforms through these algorithms. They're claiming that Meta knew that these algorithms were problematic, that they would lead to issues such as eating disorders, ADHD, and depression among young users, but that uh, the, com the company continued to keep these products and services going to drive profit. This echoes what the Facebook whistleblower, quote-unquote, Francis Haugen, testified to Congress about how is Facebook responding. So Facebook hasn't responded in court as yet, but a, a spokesperson declined to comment because uh, it is uh, active litigation. Mm -hmm. But uh, she did point to some efforts by Facebook recently, such as having tools um, for parents to control screen time and also uh, in-app resources, like having these little pop-up messages that come up if uh, a user looks for information on an eating disorder, for example, then there'll be some tips and resources that will pop up on screen to sort of help the, help the young user deal with certain issues. Are these lawsuits coordinated? So uh, there are a bunch of uh, firms. Uh, there's one group in Seattle, and then there's another firm called Beasley Allen, which just filed these eight suits in the last week. Um, so at some point, they could all get consolidated in court, but right now they're separate efforts. Okay. Interesting. Bloomer's Malathi Nayak. Thank you. Thank you. For that update.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. We have heard so much about mental health over the last few years as we've all had to navigate the uncertainty of a pandemic from home to work. This is why Thrive has partnered with the Society for Human Resource Management to get some of the biggest companies from Microsoft to Salesforce, Cisco, Uber, and Walmart to make a commitment to employees' mental health and well-being. Joining me right now, founder and CEO of Thrive, Ariana Huffington. Ariana, great to have you back with us. So what exactly are these companies committing to do? So basically, they're committing during these tough economic times ahead not to cut mental health and well-being offerings to their employees. As you know, Emily, mm. over the last two years, we've seen an incredible increase. Over 90 companies have increased their mental health and well-being offerings to their employees. Over the last two years, practically every company became also a healthcare company. And these are amazing advances. And as companies are making tough decisions, we wanted to make sure that there was a real commitment not to cut down these fundamental services, especially at a time when the mental health crisis is seen as the second pandemic. And uh, we were thrilled with the response. Within a week, we got uh, over 80, both uh, Fortune uh, um, 10 companies and also uh, high growth startups uh, to join the pledge and sign up. Now, we've been hearing a lot of talk about mental health lately. It's also being blamed for gun violence. I'm curious if you think this issue is being politicized. Well, mental health um, crisis is real. And everything is being politicized today. But the truth is that we've seen unprecedented numbers of uh, depression and anxiety, and that we know there is a lot that can be done by changing our everyday habits around sleep, around food, around the thoughts we hold in our heads to change outcomes. And that's one of the things that companies are doing beyond just uh, the medical intervention if things get really bad. There is a lot we can do about prevention. So the question is how and, and often how much is our own tech-obsessed culture making all of this work worse? You and I have talked about Facebook and now Meta, which, you know, as we were just discussing in the segment earlier, is being sued across the country for knowingly coaxing teens into different forms of addiction. What do you make of that narrative. So obviously, I don't know the details of the lawsuit, but what I do know, and what every parent knows, is that managing the relationship of their children uh, to technology, to social media, is really hard. Uh, you and I were talking about your nine-year-old son and how long can you wait before he even gets a phone. And that's something that's based on observation. At Thrive, we launched a dedicated uh, curriculum called Thriving Kids, because one of the companies who work with, Pfizer, saw the concern that working parents are having over uh, the relationship of their children uh, to their phones, to social media, the growing uh, skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety among children and teenagers. 
It's a huge issue, and I'm so glad you're looking at it more closely. I also have to ask you about Sheryl Sandberg, because I know you're close friends, and we've seen this great resignation happening across the country and around the world, and some people didn't expect to see Sheryl Sandberg be part of it. Were you surprised how long she stayed, or do you have any more insights into why she left and now? I am very, very proud of her for um, taking that step. You know, um, Emily, you and I have talked a lot about women, and so often I talk to friends in big corporate jobs who've stopped really uh, feeling that that's what they want to be doing, but so many women and men but especially women, become so identified with their jobs. And we know from everything Cheryl has done beyond uh, Facebook, uh, with the lean-in circles, with her work with Option B, helping people who've experienced loss to rebuild their lives, that this is an amazing new chapter for her. And I profoundly believe that life comes in chapters. You know, I, I've had many chapters myself, and I remember when I was... Um, debating leaving the Huffington Post to launch Thrive, I actually called Cheryl and she gave me the advice to just uh, take a deep breath, close my eyes and jump. Mm -hmm. And uh, these changes, these jumps require courage. It's always easier to stay where you are, especially when staying where you are is a huge job. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question because you know a thing or two about owning a media company and I'm so curious what you think of Elon Musk and his bid to buy Twitter. I know you gave him some advice back in 2018 to sleep more. I'm not sure if he took it, but any advice for him now? I mean, do you think he's a good owner? Will he be a good owner for Twitter if it happens? <laughs> Well, first of all, Emily, are you surprised that a company like Twitter that thrives on drama and conflict is engulfed in more drama and conflict with a man who enjoys drama and conflict? Uh, I'm actually much more interested in uh, Elon's decision to bring uh, um, everybody back to uh, the office full time. I think that's going mm. to become a very key decision for companies. And for me, what's being missed from this conversation is that more important than where people are working is how they're working. And again, uh, in the same way with the mental health pledge, we want to avoid regressing um, into the pre-pandemic past. The same applies here. We need to avoid regressing into cultures driven by burnout. And uh, that means that whether people work in a hybrid environment, um, remote, or back in the office, uh, everybody has to be much more intentional about the new work order. We cannot pretend uh, that we can unring the bell that millions of people worked remote and did a lot of good work, but we need to become much more intentional about building the social capital that we do lose when people are not physically together all the time. And that means not having people come back to the office to take Zoom calls from their cubicles. That means, um, and that's a priority for us at Thrive, being much more intentional about onboarding. We include something called the entry interview, being much more intentional about hybrid rituals, 
like something we call reset, where people create their own 60-second reset of what gives them joy and share them at team meetings. So a lot of work has to be done to navigate the new world order, um, whatever model a company chooses. You cannot unring the bell. We will try to get Elon that advice, Ariana, maybe via Twitter, since that seems to be where he is hanging out. Ariana Huffington, founder and CEO of Thrive. Always love having you here on the show. Thank you for stopping by. All right, coming up, the future of crypto regulation, how a Democratic and Republican senator are taking a stab at working on this together. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Cynthia Lummis join me coming up. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Time now for our crypto report, and today we are talking crypto regulation, a new bill that could help clarify which digital currencies are commodities and which are securities. Just got new support from the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, while well, the bill would give them more power. I sat down earlier with Senators Kirsten Gillibrand from New York and Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming, who wrote the bill. Take a listen to what they had to say. I don't think any bill can satisfy everyone, but I think this is a really great start because uh, our goals are simple. We want to create safety and soundness in the American market. We want transparency and accountability, and we want to have consumer protections. And most industry players want to have rules of the road so they know they can count on it, so they know that they can create a business plan and know that that's consistent with what U.S. laws are likely going to be. And so what 
Senator Lovins and I worked on is a comprehensive framework uh, to give guidance about which digital assets will be regulated through the CFTC, which will be regulated through the SEC, um, giving IRS jurisdiction over all, uh, making sure we have rules for stable coins and OCC. So we're doing the work that it takes to create that stability and create the essential transparency that this industry wants and needs to thrive. Our goal is not to overregulate. Our goal is to have exactly the right amount of uh, oversight so that the industry can actually thrive, grow, and continue to innovate in the United States. On that note, Senator Lummis, Wyoming is steeped in the history of the Wild West, and a lot of investors are attracted to crypto because it is unregulated. How do you strike the right balance here? Well, we have decided to use the existing regulatory structure for traditional assets uh, and lay the structure for digital assets on top of it. That's why we're using the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, the SEC, and uh, the IRS uh, in their traditional roles. So, for example, Bitcoin is clearly a commodity, so it will fall under the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So will the spot market and the futures market. And Ethereum is almost certainly a commodity. And there are a few others that will almost certainly be commodities. They will fall under the CFTC. Then, something that meets the Howey test, which is a court-based test for what constitutes a security, uh, will put those cryptocurrencies under the SEC. And the SEC has a strong history uh, of being good at disclosures and consumer protection. So we believe we've found the right balance uh, between these two agencies. The vast majority of these, in terms of market share, will be under uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. But the largest number of cryptocurrencies will probably fall under the SEC. And yet there's no real broad agreement on whether cryptocurrencies are commodities or securities. Senator Gillibrand, I'm so curious, which do you think are commodities? Which do you think are securities? So I think Senator Lummis just answered that question perfectly. And the way we have structured this oversight is by purpose. What is the purpose of your digital asset? Do you meet the Towie test? Um, are you like a company that's offering a stock to raise money for your company to fund your company? If that's what you're doing with your digital asset, you are there for a security. And so it, it, is there an issuer? Is the issuer giving you something of value? Um, is it something that's based on the managerial expertise of the issuer. Those are all um, characteristics of securities. And so it depends. It's not the name cryptocurrency that decides where you go. It's the purpose of the digital asset that you are offering to the public for sale that's going to affect who's your regulator. You know, it's wonderful to see uh, two people from different ends of Congress working together. And you found common ground on this issue of crypto. Is there space in one of the most polarizing de of debates, the gun control debate, in which you two could collaborate as well? Well, there's a bipartisan working group right now that we're not part of, but yes, there is always common ground, and that bipartisan working group right now is figuring out where does it lie. Does it lie in reforming some aspect of, of background checks? Does it lie in some aspect of red flag laws? 
gun trafficking is an area of common ground, all, always bipartisan, because it's just giving law enforcement the ability to cross state lines to find gun traffickers who are, by nature, criminal networks giving guns directly to criminals. So those are areas where I suspect there will be some common ground, but we are not on that committee. And if they fail, then Senator Lummis and I will certainly take it up. Senator Lummis, you did talk earlier this week about the volume of calls your office has gotten on gun violence and sort of signaled you know, that you were giving this additional consideration. And I'm wondering where you stand on this new bipartisan legislation now. Just, you know, where's your head at? Well, I haven't seen the legislation. The calls that I were getting uh, from people who want us to do something were not specific about what they want us to do. They just said, it's time to do something. The calls I was getting from people who are opposed uh, to doing something are specific to guns because my state of Wyoming uh, has a strong gun culture. So for me, I'm going to be looking at issues like uh, juvenile expungement of records for violent juvenile offenses, and I'm going to be looking at mental health solutions. Um, I'm worried that there are going to be a lot of um, young people coming out of the COVID lockdowns that spent a lot of time uh, on uh, the internet uh, viewing harmful uh, websites uh, that may uh, trigger them to be um, uh, violent uh, or act out in ways that probably they would not have before we went into the lockdowns. So those are the kind of things that worry me the most. Those are the things that keep me up at night. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Cynthia Lummis there. You can catch that full interview at Bloomberg.com. The Biden administration is taking new steps to shore up U.S. cyber defenses in light of Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine. The biggest cyber threats, the hot topic of this week's RSA conference happening right now in San Francisco. CrowdStrike CEO and co-founder George Kurtz was just there and joins me now here in the studio. So what strikes you as different about this conference than years past? Well, certainly we're in person, which I think uh, both vendors and customers were really excited about. I think there's a really strong interest in security. Um, it's something that I've talked about for a while. Even if we go into a, a difficult macro background, mm. security is still going to be a, a top priority for boards and a top budgeted item uh, to keep companies safe. So it's encouraging. Obviously, we're in that industry, but we're also focused on helping customers and consolidate their spend. And I think that's been a big focus. How do you consolidate spend in an area like security? Now, there have been conflicting reports on the actual state of the cyber threat landscape. Mm -hmm. For example, cyber um, ransomware attacks. Are yep. they up or are they down? <laughs> well, some of the dollar amounts are down, and I think there's uh, two reasons for that. You've seen some movement in Bitcoin, right, as, mm -hmm. it's, as it's crashed. And um, when you calculate all this, it's down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the other piece is um, when you think about Ukraine and Russia and some of the, the, the cyber crime, e-crime groups, they used to coordinate. Now, there's not a lot of coordination between the groups, and some of the groups have actually splintered and and, uh, and fractured off. So um, overall, it's still a really robust e-crime market. Ransomware is uh, one of the top uh, threats of the day, and uh, people are still paying big dollars for it. President Biden had warned about these retaliatory potential cyber attacks from Russia, but it doesn't seem like that has happened yet, has it? Well, are we missing something? Well, I think what's important to realize is that Russia continually has access to lots of systems around the globe. Mm -hmm. They're a very capable um, cyber adversary. But 
it hasn't and, happened yet, right? I mean, it hasn't been as bad as certainly the president. Well, I, you know, and I think it, that's what I'm trying to say. They have access in lots of places. And once you start to destroy things, then your access tends to get figured out, right? Mm. And what people have to realize is that in, in cyber war, it's a one-time use weapon. If, if something that's destructive is used, you can use it one time. The other piece that's interesting, and uh, it's a broader question, is what a cyber attack, a destructive one now, constitute an act of war? And I think just given the, the changing geopolitical landscapes, it's unclear. There have also been criticisms about Biden's approach to cybersecurity, you know, pushing more responsibility on private companies. Yeah. Kirsten Todd of CISA was also at RSA. Yeah. She was here on the show. Take a listen to what she had to say. Okay. When we're talking about ransomware, I think the challenge with this issue is that we've created kind of a perverse structure. We in the United States have actually created a market, a very thriving, strong market in ransomware. We're in, we now have companies that charge you know, six figures to go on retainer, to negotiate ransom, to get information about malicious actors. What do you make of that? Did we create our own problems? <laughs> I don't know we created our own problems. Obviously, uh, when you look at the amount of money that can be, be uh, gained from encrypting a, a system, I think the bad guys have figured out that if you can make $300 on one system, you, you can make a lot more by taking out an entire company. And it's just a function of the complexity of the technology environment and the fact that from a regulatory or maybe from a legal framework perspective, it's very difficult to bring these threat actors uh, to justice because because they're all over the place and a lot of times you can't get to them. So there's big dollars to be made in those areas. Speaking of dollars, CrowdStrike's share price has dropped significantly with the rest of the market. What should investors uh, be looking for over the, over the next six months? And what do you have to say to, to folks who are maybe skeptical? Well, I mean, I can't forecast the market, but when you look at our Q1 earnings and what we were able to to, uh, to display, um, and we talked about that last week, you look at the growth rate, 61% annual recurring revenue, almost $2 billion in annual recurring revenue, and that's combined an incredible growth rate at scale with cash flow generation, which is what investors are looking for. 32% free cash flow generation, $157.5 million for the quarter. We think that's the right recipe, and that's what we're focused on, executing and keeping our customers Safe. There are so many more cybersecurity companies at this year's RSA than there were even last year because so many new companies have been funded. Are they all going to survive? Are, are you worried about the, the future of some of these companies? Well, I, I, I think security is a complicated landscape and not every company, uh, even ours, can handle everything in the security landscape mm. in terms of um, specific areas. That being said, a lot of companies at RSA are features, right? They're not true companies or mm. true platform companies and a lot of them won't be public and when we think about what's happening today the public markets are locked up so you have a lot of private companies with high valuations that don't really have an exit at this point point. and when you think about the public market valuations going down that's going to bleed off into the private markets uh, we've seen layoffs at some of these companies and in fact we think it's going to be an opportunity for better hiring because of uh, just this lockup in the IPO market and the second area is in the M&A front we think there's going to be some great opportunities out there in the future interesting CrowdStrike CEO and co-founder George Kurtz good to see you in here in person for the first time here. in a couple yes, of years. Thank you so much. Thank you for stopping by. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're going to be back tomorrow. Scott Cutler of StockX will be with us. We'll talk about that legal battle with Nike and a new report about the rise of counterfeit luxury. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.